Welcome to the Modern Woodworkers Association, a podcast about woodworking from folk who woodwork. Woodworking is what we do, who we are, and what we like to talk about. So join us as we have a drink, sit around, and talk woodworking. Dimitteme quoneam peccastis peccatum podcasting cardinali. Ego non recte record prima mei pars colloqui quum benensiller. Proac excusatione mendo prebeo. Ic primum in memoria e in medio fluminis nensi scriptor discussion. Hello and welcome to the Modern Woodworkers Association. This is episode 128 and it's a special episode with Nancy Hiller of NR Hiller Design to review her fantastic new book, Making Things Work. Nancy was kind enough to join me and uh, to send me an early copy of the book, so I was able to have actually read it before we discussed it. We had a nice time. Uh, For those of you who do not speak Latin, which I'm assuming that, you know, most of you have already understood what's going on, but for the few of you who don't speak Latin, I won't hold it against you, um, you'll need to forgive me, for I have committed the cardinal sin of podcasting. I failed to properly record the first part of my interview with Nancy Hiller. For this, I offer my sincerest apology. I choose to blame Sean. He was not able to make the recording, and while it is typically not his responsibility, in fact, it is never his responsibility to watch the digital recorder we use and make sure that it is recording properly, I feel that his absence directly led to the recorder not working properly and for taking me a few minutes to realize it was not recording. So thanks, Sean. Uh, For the rest of you, I invite you to enjoy the conversation with Nancy. We're going to get into it midstream. I apologize if that's a little jarring, but I believe that uh, you can still make out what we're talking about, and we can go on to discuss many other aspects of the book and her career. So with no further ado, here's Nancy Hiller. If you're used to working in a more manual, physical line of work, um, to, to realize that, gosh, sitting still takes a toll. It takes a toll mentally for me as well as physically in terms of getting stiff and sore. I mean, I find that my mind works best if I'm writing or trying to figure out a problem in design or a technical problem. If I like go for a walk or dig in the garden or do something physical. So I think I find that the going back and forth from writing or designing, you know, drawing to physical labor in the shop, which of course is never just physical labor. Mm -hmm. It's always, you have to be paying attention to what you're doing or you're going to make mistakes or hurt yourself. But um, you're lucky I if it's only a mistake. Back and forth, extremely. Um, I don't want to use the word nourishing, but it um, it enlivens me, and it has turned into for me a real coping mechanism. So, so there's much that I really love, I adore about woodworking, um, and woodworking for a living, um, and when. I'm not feeling quite as like motivated because I've got 350 mortise and tenons to do for a job. So, 
you know, I can do something else um, for a day, depending on if I've got a contract to write an article or something, and then come back to it with just feeling totally refreshed and okay. frankly grateful, grateful that I get to do that kind of work in the shop. Okay. Well, let me, we've talked a lot about um, the intellectual and emotional struggle here, but let me return to those Mortis tenants for a second. If you've got, just from a technical level, I think most of the people listening don't often have to do 300 of them. So, when you're approaching that kind of repeated task, how do you do it? I, this is going to probably sound stupid, but here's how I do it. And it's just a coping mechanism for me. I stack the parts up in, you know, numerical piles. It's like, this is a stack of 10. This is a stack of 10. Mm -hmm. And I go through them and that's what I was saying earlier by that's what I mean by pacing myself. Like, okay. okay, I can see exactly where I am. I don't have to count them. I can look at the piles, and I'm like halfway through. And, you know, it's just this kind of thing used to literally make me feel suicidal when I was in my early 20s. I could not stand the monotony. I couldn't stand the repetitiveness. Um, and I... <laughs> I just think over the years, no matter what your line of work, you learn, you develop coping mechanisms. It's like at a meta level, you learn other ways of doing your job that enable you to deal with the parts of the job that are arduous or boring or <sighs> exasperating. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the ways that I deal with that kind of, um, you know, sometimes it's days, like days of routing dovetails for drawers, depending on the size of a kitchen or another job. And <laughs> that's how I do it. <laughs> I look at the stacks and I think it's getting smaller. The to-do stack is getting smaller. I will get there. I mean, it's like carving, okay? I am basically self-taught. A few years ago, I took a week-long carving class with Mary May at Mark Adams School, and that was absolutely fantastic. I've, I've never heard a but, bad thing about her. She's a fantastic teacher. Yeah, she's wonderful. And um, But... Even so, I mean, what I find whenever I, I don't do a lot of carving, but whenever I do, I'm like all excited, like I've got this pattern, I've got this design, I'm going to do it. And I start carving and I'm like, oh my God, it takes so long. I'm never going to get through this. And, you know, you reach a point where I do. This is my psychology. I reach a point where I think, I don't think I can do this. I, I just don't think I have the patience. It's never going to get done. And you go through that a couple of times and you get to the other end of it mm -hmm. and you realize, okay, this is just a thing that you do, Nancy. It's just a point. I now call it the nadir. You know the meaning of that, right? It's like the low point of the bell curve or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, once you pass that point of almost hopelessness, hopelessness, um, you then start to come out of it and you see the possibility of, 
completing the thing that you're working on, well, that is comparable to everything in life, right? Now, right. I've never right. been pregnant, but I bet there's a comparison there. Um, but certainly in writing a book, I mean, yeah, you get, I, anyway, there's a point at which sometimes, less so now, but earlier on, my earlier books, I'm, I, I think, Oh, man, I don't know. Maybe I should just stop. <laughs> I don't think I can ever get this done. But that's one of the great things about getting older. You can you start to develop a perspective, and it allows you to look at your situation and remind yourself, Nancy, you've been here before. This isn't new. You just have to keep going. So... You know, there are so many ways in which what you do in the shop or what any of us does in our work become sort of life lessons that have much more general applicability, I think. Right, right. I That's... didn't mean for this discussion to be so, like, <laughs> serious. No, but that, that's life. Life is a serious thing. And I think that what, you, what you're talking about is just right. the process of becoming a mature adult. Um, really? Well, I hope I get there one of these days. <laughs> I'm only 57. Well, uh, from from looking at the, um, or from looking at, from reading the progression of stories that you tell in the book um, in Making Things Work, uh, clearly, um, I would not for in any way call you old, but you are mature in that you have moved past the juvenile is not the right term, but the youth, the, the, the expectation that everything is going to be easy. <laughs> well, there's, there's that, but it's and the, lovely, lovable. You, you start with a, um, almost a stubborn determination. And I think that to a large degree that pushes you through some of the harder moments, but there are hard moments. And I think you've now got the, the hindsight to reflect on them and realize what really is hard and what really isn't. And like you said, to manage things like this, like, you know, where, 300 tenons would be overwhelming. And now you put them into stacks of 10 and you're, you're three stacks in, you're five stacks in, you're seven stacks in, look, you're moving through them. And it's, uh, it's, it's a touch monotonous, but it's not the end of the world. And that, I think right. that just comes with maturity and experience. Right. And it's never the end of the world. I mean, obviously everything we're talking about here is totally first world problems. <laughs> we just have to underscore this. <laughs> I don't know if, if, if you screw up that, that, you know, 37th tenon, that might extend to a second world problem. Well, that's true. There's definitely some overlap, but I'm talking about the tedium. <laughs> tedium, being bored is a luxury. Really. It, it truly is. It truly is. <laughs> All right. Um, so we've got, we've kind of wandered back and forth, but do you want to give just a brief synopsis of the book and a description of what it is? I know we've, it's not a step-by-step how to make, you know, X, Y, or Z piece. Um, so what is the book? It is a collection of stories drawn from real life uh, about 
what it means or what it at least has meant for me to become a cabinet maker. And when I say become a cabinet maker, what I mean is really grow into the identity and the responsibility um, that being a professional entails, at least for me. I mean, my first job when I was 21, I was a professional cabinet maker, right? It's just that you can forget about the... <laughs> well, I'm going to um, say that at 21, you were a young woman who worked in a cabinet shop. Exactly. Whereas now you're that a cabinet That is exactly maker. the difference that I'm getting at. It's just, um, it's a nuanced difference, but there's also a world of difference. And, and you can say the same about most professions or mm. trades, as we've been discussing. Um, you know, it's maybe some people are just born with a different kind of psyche that enables them to know what they want to do, and they just do it, and that's it. And they are just happy, or not happy, but they keep doing it, and they're happy in a sense. Anyway, so one of the things that this book is about is that process of learning to, as I say, make things work. Um, and that, I just want to emphasize that um, that lesson, if you want to call it a lesson, is not told as a lesson. It's told by means of um, stories that are sometimes exasperating, sometimes funny, but they're all drawn from real experience. Mm. Um, and certainly my goal in writing them was to entertain as well as inform and educate. And um, I, didn't, I didn't want it to be a serious book. That's the kind of thing I've written too much. Oh, excuse me, Mark is getting a beer out of the refrigerator, <laughs> so you can probably hear that in the background. I hope he plans um, to suggest it later. Um, so anyway, um, that's one thing that it's about. Um, another thing that it's about, I mean, the book is divided into three main sections. The first section is four little stories. It's called the English years. And it really is just the beginning of like, here's how I happened to get into woodworking. It was not part of the plan and it wasn't anything I ever thought I would do. And the way I got into it, I think, has a certain entertainment value because <laughs> of the exasperating circumstances and dealing with um, some very interesting male characters in England, my stepfather among them. Um, but the second section is called... So, so let me go back. The first story is called Living the Dream. So mm -hmm. obviously there's a little tongue-in-cheek there, right? And the whole story talks about that. And um, the second section is called Dream On, and it really kind of refers to that title of the first story. Um, and it's like, okay, dream on. You know, when we use that expression in everyday discourse, what we mean is, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> right, uh, <laughs> pigs might fly. And so the second section is 
to some extent, to a large extent, okay, um, intended to address certain myths and preconceived ideas and romantic fantasies and um, I never know the real the proper word for this things that people take as truths many woodworkers take as truths that you know when people do that to me they say something like that then I'm like it might be true but if I think that it's a load of to use a good English word, codswallop, I will challenge it, because why not? So um, so that's what the second section does by means of various stories drawn from real life. Um, and then the third section is just more sort of straight ahead. Um, the title of it is Making Things Work. And mm. so it really talks more about the day-in, day-out um stories of some particular people and jobs and um, trying situations, satisfying situations. Um, So that's the basic layout of the book. But really the entire thing is intended, insofar as it is intended for a woodworking readership, it is intended to um, present a view, which happens to be mine, of how professional woodworking might differ. I mean, professional woodworking that you depend on for your livelihood and you don't have a spouse with a well-paid job and benefits, and I mean, you like you really depend on it, right? Mm. How that might differ, or how it certainly has for me, from some of the romantic views of that life that I, for one, started out with. And that is all meant to be presented in humorous stories, not lectures, I want to emphasize. And the the book makes makes it very clear the, let's call it the less than romantic side of making (laughs) your living woodworking. Um, But it's never preachy, it's just it's matter of I fact, this is the way it was, and this is what happened to me. Um, but I think and you sometimes do. Sometimes it might be whiny, appearing to be whiny, but that when it is, that's me making fun of myself, feeling like I want to whine. But it isn't. <laughs> do you know what I'm. It's sort of like there are various comedians that do this. Of course, my favorite is David Sedaris. But, you know, there are times when you're like, okay, I am going to just go into this character and be this character so that other people can make fun of me. Because I know I deserve to be made fun of. But it's kind of funny, too. I mean, of course, Woody Allen is another one. But um, anyway, that's what's going on there. So you mentioned David Sedaris, and you've gotten me tangentially. My mind's gone off into the weeds. but to, to return to the book for a moment, the Jesus shaves <laughs> big boy. I have a copy of <laughs> Me Talk Pretty one day. I that Nick Memento Mori, some of my yeah. favorite stories. He um, <laughs> adult figures charging <laughs> towards a concrete toadstool. <laughs> <laughs> he signed it for me. I went to a book reading. And oh, in it, he drew a picture of me throwing up, <laughs> oh, 
that sounds appropriate. Um, for him. It, it's delightful, and he's a he's a reasonably good artist. So <laughs> I'm not gonna say it necessarily looks like me, but it's clearly a male figure throwing up. So <laughs> that's great. Um, but anyway, now I'm I'm completely derailed, and I have no idea what I was talking about with your book. Um, apologize. Have we talked enough about my book? Uh, well, we have and we haven't. Um, it's I, I. I'll speak. You know, personally, it it was a book that I enjoyed reading, which is not always true of books about woodworkers and books, um, you know, that are personal tales from woodworkers. Um, you know, talk, the technical books, as we talked about before. If I'm interested in what it is, maybe I can get through it if it's not too dry. If I'm not interested in what it is, who cares? Um, but this was this was a book that I thoroughly enjoyed uh, from the beginning to the end. Um, and some of it is your your personality. You know, I think that um, I I found the the humor. I, I think I found the humor in the book, which hopefully people will. Um, but beyond that, that hard to find. It, it wasn't that hard to find, but it was it was humor based in situations. And I yeah. think that someone who has never been a woodworker, never worked as a contractor, never had to deal with paying customers and their expectations, that someone who isn't familiar with those things might not find it. Yep, I think. Yep, I see what you're saying, but uh, then there's a huge swath of the population who will uh, be sickly oh, entertained. Absolutely, and I fall within that category, and I think most of the listeners do, so I think that, you know, I, I, don't, I don't mean to say, you know, people should stay away because of that. It's, right. people no, no, are listening, to, if you're listening to this, you. you'll enjoy it. It's that simple. Um, right. But as a woodworker, and I have... I have the luxury of paying my mortgage with a day job and not having to do this for a living. Um, I have a couple of commissions and that's kind of growing as time goes on, but it's, it's, you know, little bonus money here. I paid for a vacation once. Like it's not, it's not what I pay the mortgage with. Um, but in my day job, I do work in contracting and I have customers and they have expectations that are sometimes wholly unreasonable. And some of them are a delight to work with. And some of them are a royal pain in the ass. So I was able to appreciate all the the different interactions you had with customers and say, you know, there were there were certain stories where, you know, it was almost like the horror movie where it's like, don't go upstairs. You, you just, just stop now. Cut, cut your ties. Right. You, you're, it, right. it can't end well. And But, you know, you have to finish it. You have to go through it. And um, so I found, I found yeah. that very – it was something I could relate to. And I found it very entertaining. And um, some of the lessons that you demonstrate are lessons that I've le- had to learn myself through similar situations. Um, so it was a book I could really relate to. And I, I really enjoy that part of it. And I think that's going to be true for anyone who, who is a, you know, even a hobbyist woodworker, professional woodworker, professional contractor, anyone who has to deal with making things or interacting with customers is going to really be able to relate to the book. Well, I'm glad you think so. I hope so. That was what I was aiming for. Um, no, I, th- I think that uh, I think you're there. Um, and I want to f- finish off the, our discussion of the book with one more question. Um, the customers you mention in the book, and even the potential customers, because you do talk about a couple people who you don't make the sale. Um, they range from okay 
to royal pain in the ass. So clearly it's only a very small fraction of your customers in the book, but please reassure me, you have customers who are just an absolute pleasure, right? Well, they're not in the book because that's not funny. Well, clearly, but <laughs> right? I just want to make sure you I have mean, them. That's cause... the thing. I know that I probably have some customers who are thinking, oh, God, I hope I'm not in that book. <laughs> and they're not because it's not funny when things, I mean, what's funny is the tension and the just the unreasonable expectations and the misconceptions. And I mean, there are funny things that happen in jobs for my favorite customers too. And actually, as I mentioned in the last story in the book, um, some of the truly, you know, some of the customers that at the time I awarded my most difficult customer ever award to, (laughs) they didn't know that of course, have become, they've gone on to become dear friends of mine, not of each other. (laughs) And so, and that's what, I mean, that's my goal is to communicate with people and to apologize if I screw up and to just to get along with people and to be reasonable and also to be helpful and to educate people. I mean, I did start out at university thinking that I would go on to teach and um, there have been times when I've had to have some very difficult conversations with customers, sometimes because of things I've done wrong. And, and I just tell myself, you wanted to teach, you know, this is a teaching opportunity. It's an opportunity for you to learn how to communicate better, whatever. So, um, and the thing is that I think anyone who works in a service industry may be able to appreciate, as I do, that the better you, the better a job that any of us does in conveying to our customers why things work the way we do, they do, or why we work the way we do, um, and explaining the reasonable basis for that, mm-hmm. the, the better we're serving our colleagues, even if they're not strictly speaking our colleagues, but we're doing something good for everyone else in the trade or the profession by helping our clients to understand why things work the way they do. Now, it's true, different businesses operate in very different ways, but one of my original goals with the original version of this book, which was not a collection of funny stories, it was going to be a serious book, um, was to help explain why made objects, um, and specifically furniture and cabinetry, cost what they do. Because, Mm. you know, I have been (laughs) traumatized over the years by people screaming, how much? Yeah, I can't even say it at the appropriate decibel level because I would deafen you. Um, or sometimes they just don't even get back to me. I give them an estimate or a quote, and I don't hear from them. And I follow up, and I don't hear from them. And then a year or two later, I'll run into them on the street, and they'll say, I was just too embarrassed to tell you because we don't have that kind of money. You know, and I just think... Well, I don't either. Mm. You know what? It's okay. All yeah. you have to do is 
respond to the tradesperson who took her time or his time to write that quote up for you. Right, right, because it's just no that quote takes time. communicating that, you know? Um, no, I, I think so, that's a very, very important point. And your book is, I think, more relatable because it, it takes the more humorous route. But I think that that, that harsh lesson of teaching people what work is worth and how it is how it is valued is terribly important like that that sample we were discussing off air before we started that I've just made of the mantle with the three different dies on it um I've been trying to do be- a better job of tracking my own time on projects which if you're going to sell things is critically important um right. so on that sample I so far have an hour and 56 minutes into just the sample. And my prospective client is someone who is not going to buy this, this mantle from anyone else. I know him very well. I see him on a daily basis. It's, I'm comfortable in saying that he's going to buy it for me or he's not going to buy it. Um, and his reaction to my pricing was that it was very high, but that he would you know, take some time and save up and do it. And it is more than I would ever want to spend on a mantle. But that being said, I think that even on really simple projects, they take time to buy your materials and assemble them and sand them and all the different steps that we all know are necessary to finish something. And it's a craft and you should be – I understand that you absolutely don't, but you should be making reasonable money when you're working that craft. And I I didn't mean that in a bad way. I mean – you have. Right. I'm assuming you have projects that are successful and projects that aren't, and you go into many of them that aren't in the in the book. In terms of not that they're not successful in terms of the pieces you make, but in terms of the ultimate amount of time that gets spent right. in a project because either it's more complicated than you think, you make a mistake, or the customer wastes your time changing things over and over and over again. All that adds up, and when you really sit down and think about you know what your time is worth. You're not making enough per hour on any given project, um, so I, I, I like my intention when I show them the sample is, is to say, "Look, you know this little simple sample that's two boards glued up and just cut and sanded and stained. I got over two hours into this by the time it's all done, and this is just a sample." <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I mean that I lesson mean, of it, of what yeah. things are worth. I think that's a really right. important lesson because personally, right. while there are a ton of people who don't customers who don't understand the work that goes in, who don't appreciate it, who aren't willing to pay for it or can't afford it. There's also a lot of people who make things who, at least personally, I don't think appropriately value the things they make. Oh, that's definitely true. And it's been, you know, it's something that I've grappled with over the years. But at this point, I, what happened is when I, uh, decided not to go on in grad school and I left with a master's um, and I started doing remodeling work briefly and I just I switched my whole pricing model to more of a time and materials contractor type model um, that is very typical in my locale okay. um, and it doesn't mean it's just open-ended. I've learned over the years that does not fly most of the time. So 
on every job since I started my business, I keep a timesheet. I keep a strict log of the material expenses and related expenses um, that go into it. And, and I've done that over the years so that I would become better and better at estimating. Mm-hmm. And when you do custom work, most jobs are different. So, you know, you can get close uh, to an estimate, but you always have to allow for some contingency. Absolutely. And, and I mean, really when you're doing this kind of work for a living, unfortunately it also depends on how desperate you are because during the recession, I took whatever I could get. And anything that paid anything was better than being paid nothing when I, I had bills to pay. I don't think that's so, necessarily even true of just this type of living. I think that's true of most sales type situations where right. when, when and, the economy is bad, you, your numbers yeah. get tight. And you don't want to, you know, you want to do your best to keep out of that kind of situation. But there are times, and that's one of the things I were to be really honest about in this book, because it's true. There are times when you're like, hey, if I make, you know, $7,000 on this amazing reception desk instead of the 21000 that my labor is really going to end up, you know, warranting the labor and the materials, mm-hmm. Let's see, what do we have here? We have our options. One is $7,000 or $0. Hmm. $7,000 is better than 0 Yeah, it's not 21000 but, I mean, you know, I'm not going to get political here, but I will say I'm very glad that the recession largely ended. My business and many other businesses that I know of have never been quite the same as they were before 2008. The nature of the jobs I get is quite different now. But um, I'm just so, so grateful and glad that I do have enough work to pay my bills and I do have the luxury of being more creative with some of my jobs and Mm -hmm. You know, I do get the occasional amazing opportunities, such as this book on English arts and crafts furniture. And so, again, it all goes back to making things work, because really what it's about is how do you make your life work? How do you, you know, find a way to make a living and be as happy as you can be? Right, right. And I I don't want to go off too deep here, but... I work in a business where I'm selling man hours. You know, it's commercial roofing. We put 35 guys on a roof every day. And that's what it comes down to is while our numbers certainly, when the the recession hit, our crew profile changed a little bit. We, We went down a few guys and our numbers tightened unbelievably. But at some point, as you know and as you discuss in the book, employees cost money. Um, so there's a point where at least at work, I can't drop my price anymore because it's right. not right. at some point it, to send them in there costs me a certain amount and I'm not right. going to pay to send men to your house. Um, right. And that's, part and of that's the, the luxury of the small shop, I think, is you yeah, have the, that exactly. flexibility. That was part of the reason why once I got over my employee, Daniel leaving, you know, once I got, 
over the loneliness that suddenly descended upon me, I realized, oh my God, it's so liberating. Because (laughs) now if I have a job that needs more hours than I'm going to get paid for, I know people are, some people are going to be like, I can't believe she just said that. But it's true, especially when the economy is tough. I can just do the work. And Mm. if I don't get paid for every hour, hey, I'm getting paid for some hours, which is better than getting paid for no hours when the economy is as bad as it was. Yeah, and And especially when... as I said in the book, you know, you might say, well, why didn't you just go out and get a job? Hello? (laughs) There weren't any. So... you're in the the fortunate and unfortunate position of selling things that ultimately people don't need. Um, right. And when the economy is well and people have the money to support their interest, that's a wonderful thing. But right. when, when people are afraid to spend money and they don't need that new custom kitchen or that new wonderful right. table, that you're, you're the first to get hurt. So yep. the fact that you're able to just keep the doors open through what we went through. That That's an impressive task all in itself. Well, I did not do that on my own, as I make very clear. I was extremely fortunate to find myself in a relationship at just the right time with a man I love, who is now my husband, um, who said I could come live with him and rent my house out, um, which meant I didn't, at least I didn't have to pay the mortgage. I had to pay all the other expenses to do with the business and many living expenses, but um, that was just a godsend. Mm. So I would say, um, I mean, I know one woodworker who always jokes uh, when people say, what, what do I need? What's the most important thing I need in order to be a woodworker? And a well-employed spouse. spouse. with a <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's it's very very true. Uh, it definitely helps, and even if you don't, I mean, Mark, my husband is self-employed, um, so it's not quite the same thing. But um, just having somebody to share the expenses is huge, because when you're living alone and self-employed, that's really tough. Oh yeah, yeah. You need you need somebody to work with, and you know, even if you know, even if it's just the emotional support, forgetting the financial support, <laughs> but the financial right. support oh, is, no, is absolutely. helpful. Absolutely, I agree. It's it's. I mean, I don't want to say you need it because there are too many times when I haven't had it, and and I know how many of my friends don't have that kind of emotional support. So I don't want to say you need it, but, and I don't think you mean need in that ultimate necessity way, but yeah, it is a gift. It's a blessing to have. Exactly. Exactly. And it gives you, it, it raises the bottom, I guess is, you know, it it provides this base level of support, which you would otherwise have to do yourself. And, When when you're in a really tough time, like the recent recession was, it it's it, it can keep you afloat. Um, and there are plenty of people who go through and make it without that support. And you're right, you don't need that support, but it's tremendous when you have it. Yeah, 
and I don't take it for granted. All right. <laughs> well, um, that I think that wraps up our discussion of making things work, your new book. Um, but before I let you go, Nancy, I just want to touch on a couple points that we kind of skipped over because I don't have Sean here to keep me on track. Um, some recent goings on that have a, have recently occurred within the Modern Woodworkers Association is this week I was on the Woodshop 101 podcast as a guest, and that oh, was a cool. great. Yeah, it was. It was. It's fun. It's it's always nice to to be on somebody else's show and just talk with them and not have to worry about <laughs> running the show. Um, yeah, I talked with Jeremy and um and drew over there and that was a gr- that was a hoot and it's over at woodshop101podcast.com it's episode 75 uh so you can check that out and coming up in the uh second half of april the 21st to the 23rd i'll be up at fine woodworking live up in massachusetts uh, there at least on the website there are still five spots left so i'd encourage anybody to come and I'm going to bring it on Saturday night of the event. We're doing the hardwood derby. And today I received my resin infused laminated veneer lumber blank for my car from Zach Higgins. So Zach, thank you so much for infusing it for me. And um, I want the competition, but I will win. So I encourage you to enter. It's a good, it's a good fundraiser for the Cub Scouts and um, the money's going to a real good cause, but you're going to lose. So, um, Anybody who is out there who's coming to the event, please make yourself a car. I want to see that I can beat everyone. Um, so that's fun woodworking live and my my bravado. Um, you better win now. <laughs> you know what i I run the my my. I have three sons. They're all in scouting. Um, two of them have moved up to Boy Scouts, and they're not in Cub Scouts anymore. Um, Cub Scouts is the organization that runs the Pinewood Derby. So my older kids did. Five Pinewood Derbies each. I have older twins. And then my youngest son is still in Cub Scouts, and he has done – he just did his third or fourth one. He's got two more to go, so he did his third one. So at this point, I run the Pinewood Derby for our pack. Um, And when we're talking Cub Scouting, the important thing is to have the boys participate and – be as involved in the cars as they can. And I'm not going to say that they completely build a car because there are, there's certain things like I have the boys design the car, however they want. And then I take it to the bandsaw and I cut it out for them. Cause I don't want a seven year old using my bandsaw. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think that's reasonable parenting, but I'm also not going to make him take, you know, a jigsaw or a, a coping saw and spend nine hours cutting the car out. So, um, it's a mix of father and son working together. <laughs> um, most of the power tool use that's done on a proper Pinewood Derby car is the drill press. And I, the kids do all that themselves. And they make their own cars. We, we go through how to make them, and, and they, make their, they make their cars with a little bit of help. Um, so that's the important thing about building a Pinewood Derby car as the parent of a scout. However, as a parent among other parents at the race... And as a New Yorker, my opinion is that the most important thing about the race is bravado. And you need just enough to back it up. So like my my twins, one of them won first place overall one year and one of them won second place overall that same year. My youngest son has won second place overall. So we're, we're nothing, you know, 
we're not ashamed of the way we perform, but some years we suck. Last year we we tanked. This year we did not do well either. Um, so we're not perennial winners, but we have won. So I have no problem just being out there and and talking shit and acting like you know we're going to be the winners. Um, so I'm taking that attitude to Massachusetts and at Fine Woodworking Live. I'm going to be the only one there with a resin-infused Timberstrand car, and I'm going to kick your butt. So bring it. Um, if we can't have fun with silly things like this, why would we do them? Sorry, I won't be there to see that. <laughs> well, come on. If you, uh, it's, not, it's not the easiest jaunt uh, from the middle of the country, but if you want to no. fly into New York, I'll gladly <laughs> give you a ride. <laughs> um. Yeah, so anyway, so that's in coming up in April. And um, before we wrap up, even in Sean's absence, I have to provide a fortnightly beer choice. So my fortnightly beer choice will be the Southern Tier Brewing Three Citrus Peelout. And Southern Tier, okay, let me, let me give a little backstory here, is I'm from Long Island, and as a Long Islander, I understand the fact that the minute you step north of the Bronx, you're in upstate New York. Uh, however, I did go to college in Geneseo, which is out west by Buffalo in upstate New York. And apparently the people who live out there think that they don't live upstate. They think they live in the southern tier. Actually, Geneseo is north of the southern tier, but the southern tier, New York is basically, let's call it a delta shape. And that long horizontal slab that runs out to the west with Binghamton and Elmira and Corning, they think that's the southern tier. And no, it's upstate. It's all upstate. But um, these guys have a brewery out there in Lakewood, New York. And um, I steered away for the longest time because I have a cultural bias against the southern tier. But I was mistaken. Um, They make really good beer. So... Southern but Tier Brewing. Just say it's not the Southern Tier. I, I as a as a Long Islander, I don't think there is a Southern Tier. It's a made up place. It's all upstate. Oh, I see. Um, but they they don't they would tell you they don't live upstate. They live in the Southern Tier, um, which is really inside New York cultural geographical politics. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but to those people who live in the Southern Tier, I've just seriously insulted them. <laughs> um. Regardless of where where you feel on where upstate New York begins and ends, Southern Tier Brewing makes a decent beer, a very good beer, in fact. And the Three Citrus Peel Out, it's a it's a wheat ale with blood orange juice, grapefruit, tangerine peels, and natural grapefruit flavors. Now, wow. I don't like wheat ale, but this is good. So I think that speaks to the quality of it and the fact that while not overpowering, the fruitiness is stronger than the weediness, if that makes any sense. Um, it's a very nice, uh, very nice ale. So sounds great. Um, hopefully, that makes up for Sean's recent pick of Miller Lite. Um, and I know in the pre-show we discussed something which I will gladly name drop if you'd like me to, Nancy. Or is there something else you'd like to suggest in this uh, this segment of the show? Name drop. Uh, well, we had discussed a, a drink that you are not in, in uh, enjoying at this moment, but 
but that you thought oh, uh, oh, would be an the equivalent. the martini. The vodka martini. Yes. yes. Well, I am not enjoying one, no. <laughs> but had I my druthers, I would be. <laughs> well, as as we have no issue going into the depths of um, of the beers we like, um, do you have a particular type of vodka you would put in the vodka martini? You know, I honestly don't detect the difference between most of them, but my husband is the one who buys the vodka when he buys vodka, and it's usually Stoli, so okay, that's what it would be. I'll just, I'll just, uh, I'll just say that some Stoli vanilla, a Coke, homemade Mexican food can lead to a very, very memorable night. Well, no, this is not vanilla. No, no, no. You would not put Stoli vanilla in a martini, but that is, I, I've not had a Stoli martini, uh, but I have had Stoli vanilla in, in a Coke with Mexican food. Um, huh. That sounds scary. Uh, it's if, if, uh, I don't know if you say if. I'm going to say when you uh, we get together and you meet my wife, I'll let her tell the story. Oh, um, yay. I look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, before we wrap this up, Nancy, where can uh, – most importantly, where can people get the book? The One of the places, the primary place right now is my website, nrhillardesign.com. Um, just in the book section. Uh, it's right there, making things work. Um, and there will be a number of copies going to the popular woodworking store. Oh, okay. Shop Woodworking. Um, they're going to carry it. Uh, most of your listeners, I imagine, are not in the vicinity of Bloomington, Indiana, but... Actually, I think, with the exception of Paul Marcel out in Phoenix, I think every other listener is in Bloomington. What? (laughs) No. I'm sorry. I'm so gullible sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The Book Corner, our lovely independent bookseller, which still exists, will be carrying it. Oh, that's fantastic. That is absolutely fantastic. Um, well, they are a wonderful supporter of local authors and and just good books. They actually have an awesome variety of international magazines and newspapers as well. The fact that you have a local bookseller is is great, and then the fact that they're supporting you and and vice versa is is yep. wonderful. No, it's fabulous. They are the best. Uh, I I will admit to not frequenting Indiana often, but uh, if and when I do, I will certainly stop by. Well, you should, because we're in the southern part of the state, south central, where there are hills. Okay, I was going to ask, what's special about the southern? So that, okay, in the northern part, it's just cornfield? Literally. So there is topography. Okay, I I fully appreciate that. Having, I'm going to go back to my New York geography, but... Driving west from Albany to Buffalo along 90 is flat and boring and tedious and you want to shoot yourself driving. Um, yeah. Whereas driving north from New York City to Plattsburgh is through various minor, gorgeous. small, more hills than mountains, but technically it's mountain gorgeous. chains. It is at least interesting. So hills are nice when you're driving uh, and when you're living and just hills are nice. Yeah. 
I agree. Uh, okay, so that's where they can find the book at nrhillerdesign.com. That's the website? That is it. Okay. Um, besides the website, where else can people follow you online? Besides my website? Social uh, media, maybe? I, this is this a trick question. <laughs> so people should follow you online at the website, nrhillerdesign.com. Yeah, I mean, there's Facebook and Instagram, <laughs> which would be under my name, okay. Nancy Hiller or N.R. Hiller. But, yeah, sorry. It's getting a little late in the evening for my brain. <laughs> it's slowing down. <laughs> no problem. This is uh, this is getting late. The last, last podcast I was on started at 9.30, and by the end of it, it was a delightful discussion, but, oh, my God, I was done. That so was I, I'm very sympathetic to that. Was that Freddie or is that the 101? No, that was the, that was 101. With Freddie, we started oh, okay. at 9, but we Freddie's – I like Freddie, and we just talked and talked and talked. That is uh, – for any listeners, I hope you enjoyed the fact that it was an extra long show. <laughs> um, and in fact, I, I saw a lot of parallels in our discussion with Freddie uh, and with you in terms of the kind of pieces he comes on because he's another person making his living doing this. Um, and he's found an, a niche though. He's very classically trained in terms of historic reproductions and repairs and fabrications. He's found a niche in repairs and refinishing for a lot of historic pieces because the market is just not there for, for the, other, the for the creation of new historic pieces. Cause at least in terms of the pieces he's making, he's described it as for him to make a piece that's a historic reproduction is more expensive than to buy a historic piece because of all the labor that's involved. Um, so it comes down to, again, just, you know, mm. at some point you need the revenue coming in. So right. he's not afraid to turn down work, even if it's not something he wants to do per se. Right. Um, but, uh, so with that, thank you again, Nancy, for coming on and for sending me a copy of the book to read. Um, I, thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it i would highly recommend it to any listener and we've done a handful of book reviews here and i don't always thoroughly enjoy them um but making things work for anyone who is building things or dealing with customers or both i think a lot of these stories are not just gonna gonna ring true but you're gonna see a lot of similarities in the fact that everyone is customers who are paying the ass <laughs> and there's a lot of uh no. Yeah, we all do. Uh, most customers aren't, and that's why we deal with customers. Um, but we all have customers who are who are a pain in the ass. We do. It's the unfortunate truth. But that being said, it's 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 like the dark humor of the industry. You know, we, yeah, we yeah. we have some com- camaraderie around that. Yes, indeed. And I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Um, really? No, it, it was it was it was an, a very a very good read. I, to, to be quite honest, it is the first book that I have read, like reading with my eyes on a page in a very long time. I listen to a oh, lot of audio books. Right. You told me about um, audio books. Yeah, I, I listen to a, a, a lot of audio books, um, but it is the the first time I have sat and actually read a book in probably about a year. Um, and well, then I'm doubly honored. It was it was good work. You've, you made it work. <laughs> Yay. 
<laughs> so uh, that about wraps up the show. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show in iTunes or on Google Play Music or in any podcast catcher app you may use. Uh, I like Pocket Cast. It's available on multiple platforms. Um, you could just search for the Modern Woodworkers Association in any of those apps. Then you'll be sure to never miss another exciting episode. And thank you for listening to the Modern Woodworkers Association. If you like the show, be sure to visit modernwoodworkersassociation.com. You can follow the MWA on Twitter at MWA underscore national. You could like the MWA on Facebook or circle Modern Woodworkers Association on Google+. And the best thing you can do is tell a friend because word of mouth goes a long way towards sharing a discussion. So um, my absentee co-host who is out dealing with more important things and I seriously mean that. I'm not mocking you, Sean. Um, is Sean Wisniewski of the cornerworkshop.com. He can be found at SeanW78 on Twitter. Or you can search Sean Wisniewski, and I'll leave it up to the listener to spell that on Facebook. Um, I am Diami Plotke of penultimatewoodshop.com. And you can find me at Diami Plotke on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook as Diami Plotke. And these days, go to modernwoodworkersassociation.com because that's really where I'm posting everything. So with that, we thank you for listening. Pick up a copy of Nancy's book. You'll be glad you did. And go make something in the shop.